How are we doing, team? I hope you're doing great. Today, we're actually going to try to crush two chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6 of Genesis. I really want to get to Noah, uh, who comes in at the end of chapter 5 and a little bit at the beginning of chapter 6, and then he's in chapter 7 also. Um, chapter 5 is a lot of, as I mentioned last time, genealogy of the line of Seth. If you remember, he's the son of Adam and Eve um, that replaced basically Abel. God's going to use this line to eventually bring about his good purposes on earth. So let's begin reading. Uh, chapter 5, verse 1. These are the family records of the descendants of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So we're reiterating the fact that man's created in the likeness of God. And we talked a lot about that, I think, in uh, chapter 1. I'm going to bring it up again in the New Testament and expand on it. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them man. Adam was 130 years old when he followed a child in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Adam lived 800 years after the birth of Seth, and he fathered sons and daughters. So Adam's life lasted 930 years when he died. That is an old man. A lot of these people you're going to find are really, really old. Uh, they live a lot longer um, than we do now, or even a lot of people found in ancient times. So why that is... <clears throat> I have no idea. It could be because of that tree of life that, that this family was feeding off of, Adam was feeding off of, to live that long. Um, it's just how God saw fit to, to allow them to live. So here we go. Seth was 105 years old. That is really old. When he fathered Enosh, Seth lived 807 years after the birth of Enosh, and he fathered sons and daughters. So Seth's life lasted 912 years, then he died. Old man. Enosh was 90 years old when he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived, is that like from Kenan and Kel? <laughs> Enosh lived 815 years after the birth of Kenan, and he fathered sons and daughters. So Enosh's life lasted 905 years, then he died. Kenan was 70 years old when he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived 840 years after the birth of Mahalalel, and he fathered sons and daughters. So Kenan's life lasted 910 years. Then uh, I'm just going to summarize some of this. Mahalalel was 65 when he fathered Jared. Um, made sons and dollars. He lived 830 years. Jared was 162 when he fathered Enoch. Okay, here we go. Picking up in verse 19. Jared lived 800 years after the birth of Enoch, and he fathered sons and daughters. So Jared's life lasted 962 years, then he died. So now we're going to get to a really cool guy, because he's mentioned in the New Testament also. But Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered sons and daughters. Now, that's different. These other people that we just mentioned, none of them say they walked with God. There's, that's not in there. And so what we can tell about Enoch is that for at least 300 years of his life, he um, was very pleasing to God and sought righteousness and had companionship with God. It separates him from the rest of these people that we're talking about. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. And then verse 24, Enoch walked with God and he was not there because God took him. So that's quite amazing. And to sort of explain what that means, we can flip to back to that same Hebrews chapter 11 uh, in the New Testament, verse 5. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not experience death, and he was not to be found because God took him away. That's Hebrews quoting what we just read in Genesis. 
and the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, for the prior for prior to his transformation, he was approved having pleased God. Now, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. That second part's quoted frequently. The without faith, it's impossible to please God. Um, but it's seldom ever put in the context of Enoch's life. And so this Hebrews writer is saying that he was approved having pleased God. So Enoch walked with God 300 years. And during that time, uh, he was approved by God and it pleased God. And so Enoch didn't experience death. He was taken to heaven without having experienced death. That's really interesting. Um, there's only, I think, one other person in the Bible that that uh, happens with. So we'll keep going. Remember, he sired Methuselah. Methuselah was 187 years old when he fathered Lamech, which is a different Lamech, by the way, than the one we talked about that had two wives. But uh, Methuselah lived 782 years after the birth of Lamech, and he fathered sons and daughters. So Methuselah's life lasted 969 years, then he died. Now, you've probably heard the name Methuselah before. It's really fun to say. But in addition to that, he's also recorded in the Bible as the longest living person. 969 years. That would that would suck, if you ask me. Uh, eventually, death is sort of... Um, death can be a blessing because we have hope of a better life kind of the one Enoch was was sort of raptured to. And this world can be grating. There's a lot of good in it, but there's a whole lot of evil, and it can be super grating to your optimism. So there's that's definitely a blessing and a curse to live that long. I think it sort of depends on whether or not you're walking with God, like Enoch, or if you're experiencing pain for all, all those days. So Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son and named him Noah. All right. We're getting to a, a cool character in the Bible that has a lot more to say about him than just a paragraph. And so Lamech said about Noah, this one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. That's pretty cool. Um, Lamech lived 595 years after Noah's birth and he fathered sons and daughters. So Lamech's life lasted 777 years. Then he died. Noah was 500 years old and he fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Japheth? I'm going to say it's Japheth. So he's basically, Lamech is giving a prophecy about his son whenever Noah's born. Saying that he's basically going to, uh bring us relief from the agonizing labors of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. It's very interesting. This world has gone really bad. I mean, we just went through a lot of time, and as we're about to find out, things have only gotten worse. Mankind has become extremely violent and uh, anti-God. They want to rule themselves, which is sort of that <clears throat> original sin that Satan uh, supposedly committed, which is he wanted to to obtain godhood. He wanted to be like God and basically be the ruler. But he's a created being, and we're created beings. And as such, just like an, uh, an inventor has the right to say what the purpose of their invention is for, God being our creator has a right to tell us what our purpose is, and he can hold us to, to standards. And the society, as you will find, has devolved so horribly that you're going to find God actually regrets allowing them to live because of the amount of evil 
that they've done. Well, like if you had a child who grew up to be a serial killer, who caused tons of pain on the earth, you might regret ever siring that child. And that's horrible because the child had a choice. You may have wanted to raise them right, you may have given them instruction, but they ignored it and they have free will. So it's sad. So we're going to jump into chapter 6 of Genesis right here. So chapter 6, when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God that the, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves, and the Lord said, "My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt." So there's a lot to say about who the sons of God are. Um, they could literally just be men. Um, and that's a lot of times, that's probably the more theologically accurate <laughs> description. They're just men. Uh, some people like to say demons had babies with children, with uh, women and, and giants were made. It's probably more accurate to say it's men. Um, now, my little Bible uh, here that I'm reading out of, it has notes on this, and it says, The sons of God and the, and the Nephilim, you're about to read about the Nephilim, are not evidence of polytheism or mystical lore about a race of giants. On the contrary, the account repudiates the pagan belief concerning a race of giants by insisting that the children born to the sons of God were no more than men, not semi-divine beings. These were perhaps the warrior class, infamous for their acts of violent oppression in this decadent period. The sons of God have been traditionally identified either as fallen angels who had intercourse with women or the favored descendants of Seth who intermarried with the wicked Canaanite women. In the first interpretation, the Nephilim are usually understood to be descendants of fallen angels. The translation giants, popularized by the KJV, which is the King James Version of the Bible, reflects the Septu Septuagint, which is... um a like a Jewish uh, uh, Jewish book, um, Gigantes, which relied on the allusion to a race of tall people. Based on the phrase, both in those days and afterwards, others interpret Nephilim as contemporaries of the sons of God, not their children. The Nephilim of Moses' day could not have been descendants of the same Nephilim since they were destroyed by the flood. The Hebrew spies... Okay, we don't need to talk about that. That's later. That's going to be in Exodus or uh, Numbers. So basically, you can interpret this two different ways. There's no consensus whether they're actually literal sons of men or whether they are, um, you know, demons or whatever. We're going to keep going. <laughs> uh, so let's see. Uh, my spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth, both in those days and afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of man, who bore children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So these Nephilim that were on the earth in, that, in those days, it's, basically it says they were powerful men of old, famous men. So probably really, really strong, big um, warriors. Alright, so verse 5, when the Lord saw that the man's wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every scheme his mind thought of was nothing but evil all the time, that's pretty bad. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Then the Lord said, I will wipe off the face of the earth, man whom I created, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So, God is pained because... His children have turned to nothing but evil. Not only are they committing evil, but they are only ever thinking of evil and thinking of committing evil. So it's pretty bad. It's it's basically an irredeemable... There comes a point 
where you can be irredeemable. Um, and in this case, it's an entire uh, society. Now, don't get it twisted what, what, I, what I just said. Obviously, in the New Testament, you have Jesus Christ who can change the heart of men. Um, and so anyone, even deathbed confession, if it's true, can be saved. But there is this, this aspect of if you harden your hearts to where you won't even uh, feel guilt or bad about what you have done, the chances of you being redeemed are very, very, very thin. Something is going to catastrophic is going to have to change your life. I think of Saul, who was on the path to Damascus, and he was persecuting the early church. And it literally, he thought he was doing what was right, but it literally took him being blinded and met face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected for him to change his, his heart. So there's something like that has got to happen. And in this case, the Lord finds one person on earth in the line of Seth, from Adam, who uh, is finds favor. So, and that's Noah. So, verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Awesome. Blameless among his contemporaries. Cool. So, he's not um, righteous necessarily before God, as far as he's not 100% holy. Probably has sin in his life, but compared to his contemporaries, he was very blameless. Uh, Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Because of them, therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. So Noah's getting a little sneak peek on what God's plans are here. And God continues to say, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I'm bringing a deluge, floodwaters on the earth, to destroy all the flesh from under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of everything, every living thing of all flesh, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from every animal that crawl on the ground according to its kinds. They will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. So that's the like actual quick summary of this. Um, the amount of time it took for him to build the ark is quite some time, as we'll find out later. Um, and I think it's 100 years, I want to say. I'll have to look at it later. Now, remember earlier, God says he's going to limit their, their lifespan to 120 years. So this is going to wipe out all of mankind except Noah. A lot of people like to argue whether this was a local flood or a global flood. There are lots of catastrophic local floods, regional floods that you can find in Earth's history. Um, There's not that much archaeological evidence to show a complete global flood. Now, obviously, at one point, we believed the entire Earth was covered in water. Um... Other people will argue about this. Other people will say that, well, if there wasn't a global flood, how do you explain some of the 
Earth's layers uh, being mixed? How do you explain, like, um, canyons being formed? You know, they'll look at the Grand Canyon and say, well, that's because of the flood. Whereas other people will say that's just a river that, you know, ran for several million years. So there's a lot of debate over the, the scientific accuracy of these passages. You know, it says there's two of every kind of, of animal came to this ark. Now, it's great that they came and Noah didn't have to go out and capture them. But people will ask, well, could they possibly fit on this thing? Now, it's a, it is a massive structure um, that he built. So, you know, there's a chance that, yeah, totally could. <laughs> um, but there's, there's a lot that we don't know about this. And I think that we shouldn't get hung up on it. I think that instead you should see the, the spiritual implications of this flood and what it means for the human race. First off, God is always looking for a remnant this isn't the only time he decides to destroy entire peoples. Later down the line, he'll look to destroy entire cities, and he'll find a remnant to save. And even in the New Testament, there's a remnant of Jewish people that are going to be saved. They're going to turn, they're going to repent and put their faith in Jesus. So, what's interesting is... Uh, that God always finds a way to keep his promises. And after we, we talk about Abraham, we're going to see that he makes his covenant with Abraham to always have, you know, to have a, a lineage from him that's going to be blessed. And he's going to be their God, or God's going to be their God. And they're going to be his people. And even whenever those Israelites eventually, you know, Abraham's descendants are exiled to Babylon, we find that God saves a remnant that can come back and rebuild Israel uh, in the following books. So, Nehemiah and Ezra. So, I think that's one thing we need to look at as a fact that even God will, God sees a difference between the wicked and, and the good. And if there is good left, he'll save that remnant. I guess he's, he's optimistic <laughs> about man. That maybe we'll we'll use our free will um, to follow him. Um, so, but at the same time, look at it this way: He's a just God. Remember, I said earlier He's holy. He can't have anything to do with evil. He's above it. Well, He's also just God, and if you are just, it means that you can't allow evil to continue. So, He's basically stopping it <laughs> at this point. Things have gotten so irredeemable. We'll find in Exodus um, that God basically, uh, actually it's, it's in Genesis, but God waits 400 years to save the Hebrews from the Egyptians in slavery, which is, happens in Exodus. And the reason that he does that is because he wants to give the people living in Canaan, which is the land that these Israelites will eventually occupy, 400 years to repent and they don't, and instead their sin continues to grow. They become more violent, more reprehensible, more immoral, to the point where God uh, sees fit that they're not going to change, and so he allows Israelites to go in and kill them. And he uses the Israelites as a means of justice. A lot of these, these ideas are difficult for people um, until, <laughs> unless they actually, like, 
put themselves in God's position. Should uh, a regime like the Nazis during World War II be allowed to continue, or should, if you have it in your power, you stop it? And the answer should be yes. If it's in your power, you should stop it. You should also give deference to the Nazis in hopes that they're going to repent. And that's what God does for everyone. He allows them time to repent. He's patient, slow to anger. But eventually, in order to be just to the people being oppressed by that evil, he has to come in and stop it. Um, and so when people argue these, they have these moral issues with God wiping out entire an entire planet of evil people uh, or entire cities of evil people, I think that they aren't actually being fair. I think that if they were really honest with themselves or if they were on the brunt end of that evil, if your neighbor was Nineveh, which was a very evil city um, that actually repents, God sends a prophet and it tells him to repent. Um, but if you were their neighbor being oppressed by them, um, you would want justice, someone to save you. And so I think these people that have a moral issue against God exacting justice uh, wouldn't have that issue if they actually put themselves in his position um, or in the position of the, the person being oppressed or at the brunt end of, brunt end of that evil. So those are my thoughts on that. Um, so now we got Noah. He's in the ark and uh, God's about to send this flood. So we'll pick up with the flood here next. We'll see how things <laughs> things get reset, but they still get really terrible again. Um, and there's something to be said about human nature and how sin, once again, corrupts everything. So I'm excited to get, honestly, I'm excited to get to the story of the Israelites when we bring in some more protagonists here, a story of Abraham. And we start to see that God is working out his plan to bring about salvation for all mankind through Jesus. One last thing. Jesus calls himself, uh, or he is called the door sometimes. Um, sometimes they'll say, like, no one comes to the Father except through me. The doors on the ark can, in a way, be symbolic of Jesus. It is salvation from this flood in the same way Jesus brings salvation to us from the wrath we deserve for our evil. Because, I mean, don't kid yourself. You and I aren't Noah. Uh, we have plenty of sin in our life. We are more close to these other people that are being eradicated than we are Noah. And yet, Jesus comes and he offers salvation for all, not just a remnant, anyone who would put faith in him. So I think it, I think that that's something else we can look at. Everything in the Old Testament, or most things in the Old Testament, are types, and you can they can point you back to Jesus in some way. So that's all for today. Uh, can't wait till we we talk about the flood and we get moving past this uh, in our next meet. Thanks a lot. Bye.